Welcome to this latest edition of the Visions and Tones podcast. In this episode, I have a chat with Chloe Valdery from the United States of America. And we're having a talk about a theory which she developed, and this is also part of her company, and that is the theory of enchantment. The theory of enchantment is an innovative framework for compassionate anti-racism that combines social emotional learning, character development, and interpersonal growth as tools for leadership development in the boardroom and beyond. Chloe has trained and gave talks about the theory of enchantment around the world in places including South Africa, the Netherlands, Germany, Israel, Singapore, and Indonesia. Her clients have included high school and college students, government agencies, business teams, and many more. She has also lectured in universities across America, including Harvard and Georgetown. Her work has been covered in Psychology Today magazine. Her writings have appeared in The New York Times and Wall Street Journal. If you're interested in the theory of enchantment and would like to register for a course, you can get access to it on www.theoryofenchantment.com. And if you'd like to share your experiences about the course, you can get access to Chloe on her Twitter and her handle is at CValdery, at C-V-A-L-D-A-R-Y. I hope you enjoy this engagement and thank you so much for choosing the Visions and Tones podcast. Right, Chloe, welcome to the Visions and Tones. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. Um, So I've been following your work on theory of enchantment. Um, Maybe just to kickstart, can you just... Uh, explain to us what is a theory of enchantment and what are its core principles? Sure. So theory of enchantment is an anti-racism organization uh, based in the United States. And our specific approach to fighting against racism is essentially rooted in our three core principles, which are treat people like human beings, not political abstractions, criticize to uplift and empower, never to tear down or destroy, and try to root everything you do in love and compassion. Mm-hmm. And all of that is ultimately guided by the idea that in order to successfully fight racism and other forms of prejudice, one has to learn how to love. One has to learn how to love themselves first so that they can learn to love the other. Mm-hmm. And uh, who would you say is the main target? Of, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a hard question because, you know, as a business owner and uh, someone interested in philosophy, I'm inclined to say everyone is the target. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but <laughs> I would say that um, our main, the people who come to us mostly are both organizations and individuals interested in a practice that can help them sustainably fight against racism. Um, But a practice that is specifically going to teach them skills of empathy and uh, compassion as opposed to um, as opposed to cynicism and uh, animosity against what who one may perceive to be the quote unquote oppressor. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that contrast makes sense, but a lot of the people who come to us are specifically looking for that kind of an approach. 
yeah, yeah. I think it, it, it does make sense. Um, but when I was sort of listening to your work to a great deal of it, it, it seemed to me that it's just work that um, encourages people or challenges people to be the best versions of themselves, to be best human mm-hmm. beings. I was trying to think yeah. where exactly does then the racism aspect comes in. Um, mm-hmm. within, yeah. That's and, a great and, question. And then yeah. just in addition to that, therefore, when we speak racism, does theory enchantment only focus on color racism or it also, mm. you know, stretches forth to the other forms of racisms mm. or isms, whatever? Yeah. So our primary focus is on combating racism, but theory of enchantment is applicable to many different kinds of isms. Mm-hmm. But, or, and the reason for that is because we believe that racism as a form of, let's say, supremacy or a supremacist complex. What, let's talk about what that is. Mm-hmm. A supremacist complex is when a person feels like they're better than another human being because of whatever characteristic, right? Immutable characteristic. And in this case, we're talking about skin color. But if a person feels like they're better than another human being, if they feel like they need to tear down another human being because of their skin color, it suggests that 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 actual person is not fully whole within themselves because a person who is fully secure within themselves and rooted with a sense of alignment, right, will not have the need to tear down another human being in order to feel good about themselves. When a person does that, they are projecting an element of themselves that they do not like onto another person. And so when you say, you know, theory of enchantment is about people becoming their higher selves, their better selves, that is the connection between that practice and fighting racism. Because once you realize that racism is just this manifestation of projecting your insecurities onto other people, then anti-racist work becomes and requires getting in right relationship with yourself, getting in right relationship with your own insecurities, your anxieties, the whole full range of emotions that you contain as a human being. And we all contain this because we're all humans. So getting in right relationship with that complexity of self, being able to show compassion for that complexity of yourself so that you don't project your insecurities onto others and so that you can show compassion for others at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, so at this moment, is, is there of enchantment a course that is taught in schools or you just only mm. work with corporates uh, uh, about it and just teaching in workshops and, and stuff? So we certainly want to be in schools. There are a number of schools whose staff have taken and enrolled in Theory of Enchantment, Mm -hmm. which is really great. Um, Theory of Enchantment also started out as uh, an attempt to bring a kind of holistic social-emotional learning practice to high school students. One of the challenges that we've run into with that, with getting it into high schools for the students, is the bureaucracy. There's a lot of bureaucracy. There's a lot of red tape that prevents that from happening but Mm -hmm. we certainly still have our eye on the ball and we want that to be a part of you know what theory of enchantment is all about and where it is so we're still pursuing that but primarily right now uh, most of our clients do come from the non-educational world 
and they exist in both the for-profit and non-profit sectors. But we think that as time passes and as we grow in both success and reputation, hopefully more schools, more school districts will be attracted to theory of enchantment. And hopefully that'll be able to help us overcome so, some of those bureaucratic barriers that we've encountered in the past. Yeah. You said there's still a bit of bureaucracy. Some staff members don't seem to be welcoming theory of enchantment in schools. Why, why, why do you think that's the reason? And, and who are these yeah. parents? Are they, are they more lefties or, or are they progressive <laughs> or regressive kind of people who are rejecting theory of enchantment at this moment? No, it's not really a political uh, barrier, at least in, not insofar as I'm finding. I think it's just easier to get content or curricula or training to the staff of an educational institution because they have more time to do it. When you're trying to bring a curriculum, a new curriculum to a school, uh, there's all of these questions about, you know, what class is it going to be held in, right? Is it going to be physical education? Is it going to be like what time slot in the day can the curriculum actually fit into? Um, so there are these tiny factors that in tandem with the bureaucracy, you know, it may take a, a long time to get access to the stakeholder who can actually uh, make that call. Like mm -hmm. those are the issues that are more uh, that, that hinder us or that stop us from getting it to students. Um, whereas when it comes to staff, you know, oftentimes schools schedule learning days for their staff or professional development for their staff. So it's actually easier to insert curriculum or training into those buckets because they're waiting to be shaped. Right, right. So if at this moment you want to make it to school, obviously I'm, I'm very much aware that in the US there's still a lot of debates about uh, critical race theory. And, uh, you know, I looked at it and I looked at your work and I was like, yeah, they look like, you know, they speak to different, you know, kinds of mm. groups, but it's at the same time, it's for the same topic. In a, in a sense, I think your work focused on the individual, hence you spoke yeah. more about people, you know, achieving their self-worth, self-worth. Yeah. And at the same time, when you listen to sort of, um, when you go through um, uh, critical race theory, there's sort of a feeling that it tries to speak also to policy, even the works mm. of um, Dr. X Candy seems to be speaking more towards policy and whatnot. Um, in most interviews that you did, it seemed as if, so, so for me, uh, as an outsider to the U.S., it seemed as if there's a bit of juxtaposing from probably the host or whatnot of critical race mm. and, and, and theory of enchantment. And it seems as if now there's sort of a pulling of one in and pulling the other one out. I'm trying to understand, first question, what would you say was missing in the body of literature for you to come up with theory of enchantment when you look at the other works on mm. anti-racism? And then secondly, would you say the theory of enchantment um, is in addition to the other work or would you say it comes to correct the other sort of pains that might be inflicted on people by other theories? Because it seemed as if every mm -hmm. now and then you are pushed to come to the point where, where, where you have to say other theories are wrong or mm -hmm, whatever mm -hmm. in terms of their work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's <laughs> a lot to contemplate. Um, I appreciate that question, those, those set of questions. Um, I'm going to start with the first one or the last one first. Is mm -hmm. theory of enchantment a kind of corrective to some of those existing uh, thought 
you know, um, the other existing philosophies out there, even Kindi, Robin D'Angelo. I'm very much persuaded by Taoism in my sort of orientation. And so I believe in this concept of the yin yang. I believe in the concept of the, of, you know, that a person has to achieve balance um, in order to experience wholeness. And so there's a part of me that, that is tempted to give you what I would imagine is a kind of easy answer and say, yes, of course, it's the counter to critical race theory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's the anti-critical race theory. But the, the Taoist in me, like, resists that and is more like, would give you the following answer. I think that the, um, the different impulses towards elements of thinking that have been associated with Ibram Kendi and even elements of critical race theory uh, from the legalistic framework, I think that those are emergent from a society and from a culture that's experiencing incredible alienation um, and incredible feelings of disconnection, especially perhaps even more acutely felt because of the pandemic. And I think that a lot of what we see in the more contemporary forms of anti-racism, a la Kindi, are simply a reaction to that, a reaction to that experience of alienation and isolation. And um, you may say that it is the wrong reaction, and I will probably agree with elements of that. But if we don't understand where it comes from, then we won't be able to like successfully address it. I think there's a lot of pain and suffering at the bottom of a lot of this. And I think that many people, uh, Ibram Kendi included, are trying to grasp for the proper tools to deal with that pain. Mm -hmm. I think that the grasping uh, may lead to problematic conclusions, has led to problematic conclusions, but I still can have compassion for um, where these people, where these individuals are coming from. There's also, uh, there's also a hesitation to set up theory of enchantment or against setting up theory of enchantment as anti-critical race theory or anti-wokeness yeah, yeah, or whatever you yeah, want to call right. it. Because uh, I know that as human beings, we are mimetic. We tend to imitate each other. And if two things are sort of countering to each other, they're rivals and, or two people, let's say with a different set of ideas, if they're rivals and they're not really working on knowing themselves, they can start to subconsciously imitate each other without realizing it. And so if I set up theory of enchantment as an anti-woke or anti-CRT movement, if I'm not careful, I will start to uh, unconsciously imitate those elements of critical race theory or, or of wokeness that I don't like. Um, and so that's why I'm hesitant to set, set it up as anti, as necessarily anti-CRT. I don't anti-CRT. I think it's just not CRT. Yeah. Right? I think it's just a different thing. Yeah. Um, and to answer your first question, sorry, that was a little bit long. Uh, <laughs> to answer no, your, it's all right. It's all right. Yeah. <laughs> to answer your first question, um, which was, I believe, what is like the sort of difference between like the theory of enchantment philosophy and yeah. what Kindy says? Um, I think that, as you pointed out, Kindy is more focused on the collective and what he sees to be or how he describes the system, uh, quote unquote, the system or systems. Um, I have no problem necessarily with the focus on the collective. My only issue is that I think his reading fails to understand that 
culture, collective systems are all emergent from the individual. And so if there is no individual, uh, if there's no philosophy that focuses on the individual, if there's no practice that says to the individual, you know, we're going to try to achieve individuation. We're going to try to achieve wholeness. We're going to try to achieve integration. And then from achieving that, we will actually have a anti-racist society. If there's nothing to address that, um, then I think that the project that he has embarked upon will ultimately fail because it, I believe that if we want to achieve a society, if we want to create a society that's just, but not, ju- but not just just, but that's also merciful mm-hmm. and compassionate, yeah. right? We have to start with the individual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I really didn't want to make this to be, to sound like it's about you arguing with, you know, the works of Kenny sure. or uh, Kim Crenshaw and the like. Sure, sure. Um, do you want just, do you mind just touch base on you said you believe that part of his conclusions might be a little bit problematic. What do mm. you, what would you say you foresee uh, uh, in terms of his conclusions? Um, I'm trying to remember because I haven't read Kindy in a while. Uh-huh. I think when he says, I think when he says that um, he, oh, one of the things that I heavily disagree with is he describes in his book, this picture of America as um, to, to give a really crude paraphrasing that, that whiteness has al- always described uh, the quote unquote American way of life. Uh, and I just don't think that's accurate. I don't think that's a, an accurate portrayal of the American experience. Um, I think that the American experience is very diverse and very multicultural. And there are elements, many elements of African-American culture that are absolutely dominant in the American uh, experience and in the American image of itself. And to... Uh, to skirt over that or to, to sort of not be able to see that or to be dismissive of that strikes me as both, uh, it, it strikes me as prejudicial in a way towards both black and white people. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting because it seems to perpetuate something or an idea that in its origin was actually supremacist from the white supremacist perspective. Okay. You know, his, historically the KKK and other white nationalist groups also believed that black culture, that African-American culture was inferior and was, uh, and was inferior. I'll just put it that way. It was inferior to, to not acknowledge that black culture is a dominant aspect of the American experience is to kind of suggest a similar conclusion is to is to suggest implicitly because you're ignoring what is simply the reality it's it it strikes me as suggesting implicitly there's something lesser than that the only thing that can describe black american life is degradation and despair Mm -hmm. which is just not true and the fundamentally cynical uh almost nihilistic uh idea animating that um it's something that three even chapman is is uh definitely not on board with yeah yeah 
Yeah. I was trying to be polite there. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very interesting to me because obviously he's got a great following. There's, there's a lot of people actually like his work and obviously your mm-hmm. work also is coming in. Um, there's a number of people also uh, who likes your work. How old is uh, Theravin Chanman? It's three years old. Three years old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a number of people who like Theravin Chanman. And, and I was listening now to the way you sort of uh, unpacking your views about his work. And I'm thinking about, about where do we draw the line in the sense that as scholars um, and theorists and whatnot, where do we draw the line in understanding that our context at the same time might have different people, obviously they have different people with different experiences. And at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, wouldn't you say there's a need of trying to sort of bring a balance in terms of our work than trying to sort of be at a point? I guess this also speaks to my earlier point when I asked you the question, um, is theory of enchantment an addition or it is uh, mm-hmm. an opposition mm-hmm. to the current work that exists? Because I'm thinking about, you know, the way... <laughs> You know, there's too much arguments coming out in the U.S. about how the world is getting polarized. You know, you have to mm-hmm. choose it's either you're black mm-hmm. or white, or you have to choose a side. But I'm thinking yeah. this notion of choosing a side is actually the same thing that won't make us to actually unite at the end of the day. Why not think about how does theory of enchantment uh, uh, also complement part of the work mm. of, you know, what Candy does and what Kimberly Crenshaw yeah. does, or even from their side, than trying to say you've got a distorted view of what America is and how America looks like, because probably they're writing for a certain cohort, they're writing for a certain mm. audience in the same way as in your case. Why, why should it be? Um, why, why do I have the feeling that there's no sort of a sense of coming together and integrative somewhere? It seems as if there's mm. a more of a split. Yeah, I mean, I certainly hope that some of the ways in which I engage people on Twitter are uh, are encouraging that vision that you just articulated and promoting a kind of integration. Um, I've definitely talked about how there are certain elements of critical race theory that are actually quite interesting, uh, specifically some of the ideas from Derek Bell that he wrote about in si- a book called Silent Covenants. <laughs> about uh, school integration and how that unfolded in the U.S., there's actually a lot of overlap between conservative thought and the conservative position on school choice in charter schools here in the United States and Derek Bell's position uh, on integration, having been a lawyer in the Jim Crow South, working on behalf of African-American families in the Jim Crow South and pushing for integration. Um, So I do think that there can be a kind of uh, integrated version that can make room for not necessarily the philosophies of everyone or or of the people that you're mentioning, not necessarily every aspect of the philosophies, right? But which can certainly empathize from the position that many of these people are coming from. And this is something I've certainly struggled with in the past. You know, if I've seen... I've seen Ibram Kendi as a kind of, uh, what's a good word to describe how I've seen him? I think when I first encountered him, I almost found his views monstrous. I almost saw him as a monster. I mean, I did see him as a monster. I caricatured him in my vision, right? Uh, The the beautiful thing about theory of enchantment is that it forces you (laughs) to to follow your own principles. And so, you know, there are elements, there have certainly been moments 
where I haven't seen the full complexity of Ibram Kendi and been compassionate towards and empathetic towards the experience that he has had and the place where he is coming from. And assuming instead that he's this monstrous character who just wants to, you know, I don't know, pursue power or fame or Mm -hmm. there's nothing genuine there. And that's a mistake, right? That's a mistake to to not be able to see the wholeness of someone even when you fundamentally disagree with their philosophy or the conclusions that they come to. Yeah. Um, now I'm not sure, you know, what that will look like, but practically or in, in terms of like, you know, I would love to have a, be on a panel discussion with Ibram Kendi or, you know, people like that, but just for the sake of this conversation, yeah. uh, I think you're right. I think, I think that we need to strive towards a much more integrated, less split, less polarized mm-hmm. version of, of you know what we're ultimately trying to reach for which is that compassionate anti-racist society mm-hmm. i think uh part of what you were sort of unpacking now um you know not sort of caricature him or whatnot you mm-hmm. it, it's what you described i think you said you you draw theory of enchantment draws also from the work of physical yun on the shadow oh yes yeah, for do, sure do you, mind just, uh, do you mind just speaking a little bit about that um yeah, so in Carl Jung's work, the shadow is basically basically represents the unconscious. It's all the aspects of ourselves that we do not see and we do not take responsibility for. And by see, I obviously don't mean physical sight, but have yeah. some insight that it actually exists within us. And if we're not careful, if we're not in right relationship with our shadow, which is really the unknown within us, mm-hmm. um, the mystery within us, then what we can do is we can get into an ex- experience where let's say someone, let's say I talk to someone and they're being super condescending towards me. And uh, instead of being able to express how I feel to them, you know, what I experience when they condescend and, and how I think that feeling is, is hurtful towards me. And, you know, when I, when I experience it, I feel small and alone and isolated and I want to, connect to you and so this is why i'm telling you this instead of going through that process where we actually express our feelings and have a mature conversation what i can do is if there is a part of me that also condescends to people right that also has a superiority complex mm-hmm. but which denies that fact in me or ignores that fact in me then i can actually start to uh see that other person as less than me right and and behave towards that person in that way mm-hmm. and so that's why carl Jung taught the importance of getting in touch with the shadow we have this exercise in theory of enchantment called shadow boxing where you have to you have to identify a person you don't like or whose behavior triggers your ego mm-hmm. and then you have to identify basically how that behavior shows up in you yeah. <laughs> and it's a very uh, it's a very difficult practice because then you begin to see the parts of yourself that you may not like, right? But that is actually necessary if we want to achieve psychological wholeness and balance um, because otherwise those emotions and those feelings will control us mm-hmm. instead of us being in control and in harmony with those feelings and emotions. Right. Wow, that's really great. And and you also borrow uh, from Dr. King, uh, Baldwin, um, 
Malcolm X, how, how important would you say their work is within theory of enchantment and the current times? I'm thinking mm. also during the times of Black Lives Matter, it may, might have been very hard for many people even who might have wanted to approach, you know, the mm. whole um, uh, George Floyd matter with more love and peace as, you know, the ideologies yeah. of Dr. King. Uh, uh, how important would you say that is today? Um, the work yeah. Well, I think, you know, especially because Theory of Enchantment is based in America. And so yeah. it's an American context for now. <laughs> we yeah. hope to expand um, at some point. But it's, it's settled within, it's nestled within the American context. And so these are figures who are part of our, our zeitgeist, right? Who, are, who we, on some level, consider to be the moral leaders of our past. Um, and so they they loom large in the moral imagination of the American experience. And certainly against the backdrop of the murder of George Floyd and the uh, protests, Black Lives Matter protests, and the ongoing conversations that emerged over the past two years, um, if people have not actually deeply studied and um, been in some kind of a discourse, so to speak, with the writings and the texts of the men that you just mentioned, yeah. um, then one will not be able to apply their timeless words to the current situation. The other thing I'll say, specifics of Black Lives Matter in 2020, the challenge of Black Lives Matter as an organization, both in terms of its national sort of uh, framework and its more, much more local chapters, the challenge is that it often was able to articulate what it did not want, right? It did not want police brutality. It did not want racism. Okay. It did not want prejudice, right? But it was unable to articulate what it did want. Mm -hmm. And that absence was very much, you know, I attended one of the protests here in New York City in the summertime, summer of 2020. And I think that absence um, was very palpable. And I think that absence is what, in many ways, exhausted the movement of its passion and its longevity, right? Um, and so, but if we were actually, you know, maybe this is too much for me to ask, but if we were actually studying the writings of, you know, Dr. King and Maya Angelou and James Baldwin and really wrestling with, you know, how do you achieve wholeness within? Because that is especially the essence of what Bald both Baldwin and King talked about, especially Baldwin, like, Baldwin was like a low key psychologist. And so if we, if we were actively engaging with those writings and actively trying to practice this uh, practice of becoming whole, um, then I think we would arrive at the movements or create the movements like Black Lives Matter in a much more holistic way and in a way that would ensure more, more longevity. Um, but that's, who knows, you know, we have yet to see <laughs> if yeah. that will be the case. Yeah. But that's, so that's a theory that I have. Right, right. So just briefly, uh, briefly, Chloe, um, part of you've done talks in places outside the U.S. Yes, uh, I can hear that at this particular moment, it's still U.S.-based. Uh, mm -hmm. But you've done talks outside the U.S. How was it received outside outside the US and the, the mm. audience that you, you were talking to, did you, did you, did you have the um, impression that they could clearly comprehend the works of the scholars that you actually refer to, particularly Dr. King mm. and Baldwin? Yeah. 
Well, I do. So when I would speak in countries outside of the U.S., it was in it was in speech form. So I would give, oh, you know, yeah. 60 minute talks, 90 minute talks. It wasn't a workshop or oh. or, you know, a course. And so there's just going to be a different level of of interaction yeah. uh, based upon that. But um, certainly when I would bring up Dr. King and other references from the American experience that are also known globally, like have mm. some uh, uh, global resonance, many people responded positively. Um, but I do think that in the future, I mean, I know that in the future, when we want to expand theory of enchantment internationally, what we will have to do is we will have to go into the countries in question and actually study the culture and study the issues of the day mm. and see the very, you know, the various conflicts and prejudices that emerge that are specific to that culture and specific to that country. And then mold theory of enchantment. We'd have to change the principles, but the exercises and make those specific to what that country, what the people in that country are experiencing. Yeah. And I think that'll be more, um, it'll just reach them in a, in a more direct way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I, I think I'd love to really see uh, how far the work can go in that particular way, uh, simply because yeah. probably there'll be more preparation, a lot of reading for you and your team so that you can reach <laughs> different countries. Yes. And yes. also, you know, understanding their politics. I'm thinking in the context of South Africa, I would have loved to hear how did, how did, how did theory of enchantment, how was it received in South Africa? Uh, I'm, mm. or I'm, I'm South African. And, and, and mm -hmm. sometimes I listen to, you know, the, how Nelson Mandela is being spoken about, you know, some people see him as a champion of peace or whatever, but, you know, I think recently there's been a growing trend of people sort of trying to question his legacy to say he's a man mm. different, you know, with a very questionable, it's not like he was angelic in a way. Uh, sure. I would have loved to actually hear um, 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 from you, how did South Africa receive, uh, and, and, and I think mm. the whole story even about Nelson Mandela is the fact that there's a concept called Ubuntu, which basically means uh, humanity, and, and of which mm. I think it can actually align somewhere greatly with theory of enchantment. It's about, you know, be a best vision, be a, best, a better human being. But the problem then about humanity is the fact that mm. whenever uh, probably the black population begins to feel like there's so much racism from, mm -hmm. you know, the um, white group. Um, and if they try to retaliate, then you'll hear the concept Ubuntu being used and people mm, are like, it mm, seems mm. as if this concept Ubuntu is only pulled out to, you know, mm -hmm. to calm down the black group. It's sort of used to <laughs> hypnotize people. One leader actually sure. said it, that every time South Africa goes through a moment and people begin to retaliate, it seems as if there is a Nelson Mandela's name used to hypnotize people to say, calm down. Mm. But there's realities yeah. beyond, you know, just the use of Nelson Mandela. I was wondering uh, uh, whether you have a bit of an idea uh, um, as to how did, you know, s few South Africans receive uh, mm. uh, theory of enchantment. But I guess, I guess with the mouthful that I've just said, the point was that th there will be great challenge for you to sort of, you know, you know read different texts <laughs> yes. and the, politi the politics of different countries. Yes, well, you know, I would love to learn what's going on, learn more about what's going on in South Africa at some point. So I was in South Africa a few years ago, so my memory will be a little bit short <laughs> in terms of how I was received. But I can tell you that I, I mean, I was received very warmly. It was also my first time in Africa and I have, you know, this, this kind of, what would you call it? African consciousness, yeah. uh, being an African-American -Ameri in the United States. Um, 
And so being that it was my first time in, in Africa generally and in South Africa in particular, it was a very moving and somewhat spiritual experience for me. Uh, I would love to go back to South Africa, you know, along with other countries in Africa. Um, I, I think I'm, I am interested in this idea of, how do you pronounce it? Ubuntu? Yeah, Ubuntu, yeah. Okay, I'm interested in this idea of Ubuntu being exploited um, <laughs> for, <laughs> you know, it's, it's on, on, on some level, it's very like, you know, well, of course people are going to <laughs> exploit it. Of course people are going to, you know, even use the legacy of Dr. King to, yeah. you know, do similar things. I think it's still incumbent, though, upon South Africans, whether black or white, Mm-hmm. Uh, to search their souls for the deeper meaning of Ubuntu and and uh, make a choice in dedicating their lives to the true spirit of the word, in spite of the fact that others uh, who perhaps may not be completely whole inside, just putting that out there, mm-hmm. uh, are exploiting <laughs> are exploiting the term, yeah. right? Um, so that would be my very novice level piece of advice unsolicited that i would <laughs> that i would give in this moment yeah. um as related to the south african context yeah um part of your work you say it sort of instance it, it is inspired by pop culture and i can mm-hmm. see at some point part of your work you explain different lyrics from kenrick lamar's song as to during your workshops and whatnot and you say you also uh use brands like nikes because these are stuff that people like i was just curious to know mm-hmm. in terms of the brands how, how do you use the brands in your workshops mm. so theory of enchantment came out of a desire to learn how to love mm-hmm. and i wanted to know is it possible to learn how to love can you teach people how to love and then from there it emerged the question well Maybe if I want to learn how to love, I have to ask, what are people already in love with? And what does that tell us about the human condition? What does that reveal to us about the human condition? And I realized that brands can show us what people love. And there are particular brands like Nike and like Disney and like Beyonce and like Apple that have, you know, almost religious-like devotion from their fans. And I was wondering what is at the heart of that? Why is that the case? Why do we gravitate toward these brands in such fashion? And I realized that what's common across these brands is many of them basically portray to us an image of ourselves, which is flawed and imperfect, but which can ultimately achieve full potential. Mm-hmm. So that's reflected in the Nike idea of just do it. It's reflected in the the spirit of Disney, which is this idea that, you know, almost every Disney movie is a motif for the human condition. Some flawed, imperfect, uh, would-be hero has to go through a source of, or, or a set of, you know, challenges and obstacles and try to overcome them. And in doing so becomes the hero. So this is what we gravitate towards as human beings. And if there is such a thing as timeless wisdom, then we should expect that wisdom to be present in contemporary sources like pop culture. Mm-hmm. So the beauty of being able to talk about, let's say, stoic principles and juxtapose them next to 
lessons from Disney's The Lion King, right? It's really magical because, because two things happen. Stoicism becomes alive in the minds of people who may have never encountered it. This ancient, you know, psychotechnology that was used to help people deal with a complete uh, shattering of their world during, you know, this was a time after Alexander the Great had taken over the known world and the Greeks were upended, everyone in the world was upended and um, people were looking for ways of being that would help them become uh, settled in a world where they had just become homeless, basically. Like that's where, where stoicism comes from. Yeah. And so introducing that to people who may have never thought of it or may have never studied it, while reintroducing them to the Lion King, which they more than likely have seen, and revealing to them that the Lion King is not simply a form of entertainment. There's a reason why the Lion King is like one of the number one uh, successful shows on Broadway, for example. There's a reason, there are elements and themes from the Lion King that speak to us on a human level and that are yeah. immediately applicable. So the juxtaposition of the ancient and the contemporary is something I think will help people um, get access to wisdom that they may not have had access before. Mm-hmm. I love I love the the use of you know Disney and whatnot the storytelling. You're leaning towards um, um, Peterson's style of you know at yeah. and, <laughs> and yeah. um, uh, Slavoj Žižek. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the works of Slavoj Žižek. He, he's also um, I've seen him in in I've actually heard him on a few podcasts and I've seen him debate Peterson. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's that's funny. really. Um, that's really interesting. Um, so we're going to wrap very soon. But before we do that, okay. I'd love us to speak about uh, criticisms um, at mm, this mm. moment. Obviously, I love your work, um, uh, but I wanted to hear from you. What what kind of criticisms are you sort of uh, receiving? Mm. First, maybe ideological criticisms in terms of your work, apart from the, the earlier one that you mentioned that, you know, people think mm. that you are, you know, just against critical race theory. And- yeah. Yeah, which I hope not to be. <laughs> um, <laughs> at yeah, some point, I mean, to, to be honest with you, at some point I felt like it seems like you you really pull in um, a bit away from critical race theory. But I was like, let me let me just mm. get a lot of your work from different corners and whatnot. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I, yeah. get, I get a feel of something, but probably we're going to touch on something else here because one of the things that are kind of felt like. Um, was a bit problematic in the beginning, but I'm, I'm glad that you clarified is the fact that uh, you target just everybody. At some point, yeah. I felt like, I felt like why, why does it seem as if critical, why, why does it seem like fear of enchantment is actually pushing me as a black person to sort of be the bigger person? And I, I guess that's mm-hmm, one of the mm-hmm. things that you probably had. Yeah, sorry for disrupting. Yeah, you. for sure. No, 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 that's that's good. That's yeah. good uh, primer. Um, I was going to say something, but then it's, listen, that is one of the criticisms that I get. It's like, you know, it's this line that goes, why are you telling, why is the burden uh, on black people to respond in this way or what have you? And while I empathize with that perspective, it is still caught in the, in this uh it's still caught in the spirit of like polarization doesn't quite capture what i'm trying to say okay um it's still caught in the spirit of 
Mm. Maybe there's another way I can try to explain it. If you're seeing this still through the lens of, oh, all these people over here are black and all these people over here are white, right? And I associate whiteness because of a whole host of history, historical things that have happened to me as a black person. I associate whiteness with, with oppression and uh, uh, um, superiority complexes and evil, let's say. And I associate blackness with good mm-hmm. and and power and beauty this strikes me as just an inversion of a way of thinking that we're trying i thought we were trying to get out of and so the problem with this line you know the why should the burden be upon me to show compassion for example well it's not that the burden is on me to show compassion it's that if i internalize what my quote-unquote oppressor is doing to me such that I become hateful and bitter and filled with rage and uh, vengeance inside myself and consumed with anger, right? Then I am not actually free. And that is ultimately what this is about. And that is ultimately why theory of enchantment is for everyone. We're talking about the interiority of a human being, right? Not simply the exterior uh, structure of a human being. If another person has material money and power and is able to use that to dominate me mm-hmm. in a material way, still that person who has that money and power is still enslaved to his own impulses and emotions, which he cannot get in control of. And that, sl- that enslaved mentality affects me and it also affects him this is why james baldwin said and this is <laughs> i think i disagree with elements of this statement by the way but okay one of the things one of the things james baldwin said was um if you take if you look at a racist uh sheriff in the in the south his name is sheriff clark this is during jim crow and he said um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I, I look at this guy and clearly he's a man. Clearly he's a man who loves his wife and loves his child and likes to get drunk just like I do, but he doesn't know he isn't conscious of what drives him to pick up the baton, to pick up the gun and beat the black person uh, that he just beat in this protest. And then he said, this is the controversial part. He says, what happens to the person that he has beaten is ghastly. But what has happened to him to make him do this, to drive him to do this, is in a way far worse. And so the challenge of this idea that the burden, the burden should not be upon me, right? The challenge of that statement is that it obscures the fact that if I do not take responsibility for my emotions and for my feelings and whether the feeling is rage or whether the feeling is love, if I don't take responsibility for it, I will become just like the person who is oppressing me. And so then in a way, in a way the burden is upon me mm-hmm. <laughs> actually, and perhaps it should be, and perhaps it is a blessing to have that burden on some level. Mm-hmm. Uh, which part, which you said is something that you also disagree with a little bit with, with uh, his statement. Yes. What, what's the, <laughs> <laughs> the part I disagree with, 
or it's not really a disagreement. It's just an acknowledgement that if a society, if, if it's interesting, if you study African-American life in the Mm -hmm. South versus the North during the Jim Crow era in the South, there was, there were all these networks that were established by the community. So there were churches and black owned banks and stores and all these things so much so that there was enough material wealth to leverage a boycott and stuff like that. But not only was there material wealth, and this is really important, there was psychological wealth, right? The people felt secure enough in order to want to be free from the shackles of Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. Dr. King said one of the challenges and one of the great sorrows that he experienced once he got to the North was that that psychological wealth was actually missing. And in a way, because there was such so much despair and so much cynicism in the North that the people, to a certain extent, didn't even desire to be free or to be liberated from what was going on. Um, now, why do I bring that up? I bring that up because Baldwin's statement, when he says, what has happened to the woman is ghastly, what has happened to, is in some ways far worse. Um, I, I think it can be equal, actually, the impact. Um, not necessarily far worse. And the reason why the impact can be equal is because if that person who has just been harmed, persecuted by the you know, Sheriff Clark, if that person isn't themselves nestled within a loving society or culture that has values and a sense of resiliency and can like hold that person, even while they're experiencing that, that kind of degradation, then the, the likelihood that that person's self-esteem will go down mm-hmm. and that person's sense of self-worth will go down. And then that person will be inclined to act in the exact same way as the person who persecuted them, that, that likelihood increases. And so mm-hmm. there's a point in which the impact is actually the same. It's not that one is worse than the other. The impact is actually the same. Right, right. That's interesting. Um, oof. <laughs> I said a lot there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I want to also put something forth, but I'm just trying to think what would, it, what mm. would be the best way to sort of put this. Um, you spoke earlier on about, um, you know, I think you touched a little bit about the response, you know, how one has, one should see that it's incumbent upon themselves to have emotional control whenever people are saying negative or bad things towards them, right? Or in general, just in general, have emotional control. Or in general, have emotional control. And for me, when you say that line, I'm thinking more about, here's Tony, somebody says bad things to me, then therefore it's incumbent upon myself to sort of mm-hmm. have emotional control, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm thinking about what then, what responsibility, and I guess that's this actually sort of tried, tried, tries to explain my earlier point when I said, when I was listening to your work, it felt as if I, as a Black person, I'm left with the responsibility to do the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I was thinking, what responsibility then would you say the person saying negative words to me has mm. um, in one of your uh, talks. I can't remember which one is, is that, but you, if you can please help me, um, mm. you quote uh, Dr. Maya Angelo and you say, she said something oh, yeah. like, if people 
say bad things about Tony, the reality is that Tony will actually go to the extent of proving and, you mm-hmm. know, holding on to the negative aspect. Mm-hmm. But in the same line, I was thinking about the works of uh, the Nigerian author, Chimamanda Adichie, um, mm. her talk, The Danger of a Single Story. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially, the yeah, the TED talk, yeah. yeah. Especially when she speaks about, she says something like, if you show a people as one thing, nothing but one thing over and over again, mm-hmm, that is mm-hmm. what they become. Mm-hmm. And I was listening to, you know, the co- I was trying to think about the quote from Dr. Maya and then the quote from Chimamanda. Mm-hmm. In a sense that Dr. Maya addresses that Tony would continue to do bad because you're projecting him as bad. But in the context mm-hmm. of Chimamanda, she's saying, you who's saying Tony is bad, if you continue mm-hmm. to show Tony as bad, nothing yeah. but bad, that's what he's going to become even within your in-group. Yeah. So, so, so I'm trying to think here about these two things. Tony now is given a responsibility according to the theory of enchantment that you have to, you know, have emotional control, uh, whatever. Uh, what responsibility would you say then the person who's saying negative things has, not just mm. towards me, but also to himself and people who are looking up to him within his particular in-group? Well, yes, I would say that those two statements, those two quotes are symbiotic. And I, I think we, you know, when, I, when I hear the Maya Angelou quote, she says, you know, if you tell someone over and over again, they are nothing, then they will say to you, oh, you think I am nothing. I will show you what nothing oh, yeah. is. So they're actually very similar statements and in, in who they appear to be addressing in that quote. Um, but it's a symbiotic relationship. I would say the responsibility of the person who is, who is doing the persecuting is the same. The responsibility is for that person to look within themselves and take responsibility for their feelings and their and their impulses and their emotional range and attune them in such a way that they're integrated so that they don't feel such a sense of a lack of self-worth that they are going to try and drag you down in order to feel like, oh, now I have the power and now I have, you know, the... Uh, now I have the superiority, right? Because that it's almost like a drug. It's like, if you're feeling some kind of lack of self-worth, you know, if you're feeling some kind of sense of loneliness or sorrow or other form of suffering, that can be very painful. Mm-hmm. And James Baldwin said that the reason why people cling so much to their, to their hatred is because once hatred is gone, they will have to deal with pain. And so that's why the responsibility, whether it's the person being afflicted or the person doing the afflicting, to take responsibility for the pain and the, and the suffering that they're experiencing and be in right relationship with it in such a holistic way, which means to ask you to, to embark upon this process where, you know, like the Buddhists teach, you ask yourself, where, where in me is there pride, right? Where in me is there, is there envy? Where in me is there um, a kind of overwhelming possessive attachment? And how, what are the practices that I can engage in on a regular basis to sort of let these go? So I'm not acting in this, you know, brutal, oppressive, cruel manner. So the responsibility is the same. And I'd say one last thing to that. You, you and I are responsible to each other. Yeah but we are not responsible for each other. 
And that's a really important distinction. I, 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 I cannot, it's impossible for me to take responsibility for your feelings Mm -hmm. because they're your feelings and they're specific to your lived experience and your unique, unrepeatable context. Right. And you cannot take responsibility for my feelings because they're specific to me and my experience and my context and, and so on and so forth. But we can be responsible to each other. And notice that the word responsibility is a, is a uh, musical word to respond to, right? Not to respond for, but to respond to. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm re- reminded of in the Baptist uh, African-American churches, you know, there's this idea of call and response that takes place in the gospel music tradition. Um, And so that's kind of what I'm trying to grasp at when I say that whoever you are, you have a responsibility to take for your fullness so that you might achieve wholeness. Mm -hmm. Right, right. With with that, the part that you just said, I should take mm. responsibility for my own feelings. You should take responsibility for your own feelings. I like it. But mm. why, at some point when I was listening to your work, I had this impression that perhaps it may not be take responsibility. F- I'm taking responsibility for somebody else. You, you can sort of uh, help me understand this uh, better. But why do I have the feeling that at some point th- there's a critique towards Black people who say, I do not have, I should not be pushed to do, uh, what is it called? Uh, em, uh, emotional, what is it called? Unpaid. Oh, labor. emotional labor. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Unpaid <laughs> yeah. emotional labor. It seems as if yeah, there's, yeah. there's that critique. But I love this critique. This is yeah. one of my favorite critiques. <laughs> and the reason why it's one of my favorite critiques, because notice the transactional implication in the critique. Mm-hmm. Right in the critique, we are still viewing each other as things with which to fulfill transactional ends and means. Right, we are still in what Eric Fromm called the called the having mode, mm-hmm. where we define our identity according to how much we have, material and otherwise, how much we possess. Right, how much are you going to pay me materially? for me to be compassionate towards you. Those are, those are things that, that that's, a, that's, a, that's modal confusion, right? Because what we're ultimately talking about is who do I want to be? What is the kind of person that I wish to be in the world? How do I want to show up? Right. And if I'm showing up in, in such a way where I am not in relationship, and listen, I'm saying all this, I am alert, actively learning how to do this, right? Yeah. I am yeah. not an expert in this. I will be learning how to do this to the end of my life. It is a lifelong endeavor. So I don't want to get, give the impression that I'm an expert because I am not by any means. And I have many teachers, but at the same time, if I don't take responsibility for myself, I will lose myself. And there, and so to, and so to say like it's unpaid emotional labor is a almost tragic statement because what we're talking about is the process of individuation and the process of seeking wholeness. And if your response to that is, well, I'm not getting paid for it, right? I'm not getting compensated for it. Suggests that we are perhaps in over our heads and we have a lot of work to do as a society and, and as a culture. But but to say I'm not paid for it doesn't necessarily mean that 
I definitely need to be paid for it because I think I think at some point when I hear people say I'm not paid for it, they're basically saying, mm. "Look, you could do something on your side to sort of, you know, get access to this thing that you're expecting me to give to you, um, either through uh, can you give me a specific, internet or whatnot." Can you give um, me a specific example? So I'm just thinking. For instance, let's say during Black Lives Matter, Australia was actually in that hype also you know where people came mm. forward and spoke about black lives matter and you know people went out on a march but which i hold different views about that some of them it wasn't necessarily because they are for black lives matter i mean we're in the middle mm. of the lockdown people wanted to be out and take pictures <laughs> yeah, and sure. whatever the case right yeah but let's say we speak on that particular case where people say would say even today why people would say i i didn't know how to treat a black person i don't know how to speak to a black person and then let's say tony has been explaining this two times and times of you know uh, mm. white people and then mm-hmm, i come to mm-hmm. a point where i feel like this is so tiring i can't keep on you know explaining yeah. this thing over and over again uh, I'm not getting paid for it. So the necessary, the, mm. so necessarily the line I'm not getting paid for it is not to say I need to be paid, but at the same time, I feel like, look, there's too many stuff online that as a white person you could look at. And at the same time, Tony could also be conflicted with the fact that is this person genuinely wanting to learn or this is another person trying to waste Tony's time in the name of that mm. conversation? Because it breaks my heart. I've seen this happening a lot even in churches. My church mm. actually did the same thing, which I'm not going <laughs> to call the name out. Sure. But, but they did the same thing. They held a lot of talks about how to treat Black people. They had a lot of talks about uh, uh, policies on uh, diversity and inclusion and whatnot. And a lot of Black people were excited to say, finally, somebody is thinking for us, but it had mm-hmm. to take George Floyd for churches to think about how to treat people of different race groups. It's something completely different. Mm-hmm. And only to think, only to see that when the wave of Black Lives Matter and George Floyd isn't like now the topic of the day, churches actually forgot about what they were promising everybody. So they actually mm-hmm. fell onto the trap that this is a trend. Let's talk about Black sure. Lives Matter. Let's talk about how to treat Black people very well. Mm-hmm. So it comes with that kind of you know, people get tired to keep on explaining themselves. Yeah. Hence, nothing changes. You know, so yeah. so so I feel like to say, to say, I'm not getting paid for it. Sometimes it doesn't necessarily mean that pay me, but it's to say, sure, ah, this is tiring. You're not, not seeing any. You're yeah. not seeing any return from the emotional investment that you're yeah. putting yeah. into it. I can respect that, and I can. Uh, I can empathize. There is a response, but I don't, uh, I don't know, you know, if I, I don't know how to properly articulate the response. Um, I deeply empathize with that because like, yeah, if I'm investing in, if I'm trying to invest emotionally in a relationship and I'm not getting a response, then I would be exhausted as well. So I understand like, the metaphor (laughs) and so the question is do you stop investing in the relationship also i I had a question about the example that you just presented um it, uh, it correct me if i'm wrong but it doesn't sound like are the people that you're speaking about the white people that you're mentioning would you consider them friends like, would you label them your friend? Some of them. Some of some them. Of them are good. Yeah, some of them are, are friends. 
Uh, okay. But obviously, friends in a different level because. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, we we I don't know what would be your conception of a good friend, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because sometimes you find that you get into. So, for instance, where the church I go to, I serve there. But mm-hmm. and I've been there for like now about four years. I can tell mm-hmm. you now, even up to now, people cannot pronounce my surname. Mm. You know, and and for some people, they might say that's not important or whatever. Right, right. Like. Now it is. Yeah. But for some people, also, they do not even know what I'm doing. And I'm thinking, I've mm. been here for quite a long time. Are you really interested in who Tony is, or are you just interested in having me do stuff mm. that makes you happy in church or whatnot? So that's what, I'm, that's what I mean when I say it's friends, but probably on a different kind of level. It sounds like there's some mistrust in the friendship. Definitely. A, yeah. Um, but, but mainly from my side. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You but know, I don't know whether they trust me and whether n- knowing how to pronounce my name or knowing what I do right. has that built up to, the, to them trusting me or whatnot. But right. I know that right. when it comes to responsibilities, they do say, okay, Tony, can you do this? Can you do that? And whatnot. So perhaps in me doing stuff that they want, they trust me. But on the deeper level for things that for me, I feel right. like they're meaningful. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, it doesn't strike me as a deep, authentic relationship. Mm-hmm. And so the question for me would be, you know, if I'm, if I'm interested in developing a deep relationship with this community, if I care about this community, then am I going to continue to invest or... Am I going to, you know, cut my losses, so to speak, and move on to another community? But I will say, before you make that decision, or before anyone makes the decision, um, I'm reading this incredible book called Nonviolent Communication by Marshall Rosenberg. Oh, it's so good. Highly recommend it. Um, And he talks about, you know, not withholding your feelings and how taking responsibility for your feelings requires not withholding them. So I would try to have a genuine heartfelt conversation. I would read the book first and then I try to have a genuine <laughs> conversation. Right. Cause it'll show you like how to, how to word. First of all, how to really get in touch with what you're feeling when they're mispronouncing your name or when they're not, you know, showing that relational piece. Be real about how that makes you feel, right? Because that would make me feel lonely. That would make me feel isolated. That would make me feel like a loss of belonging. That would make me feel judged, right? That would make me feel all these various things. And I would have to develop the, the tools or the wherewithal to be able to actually say that. And, and to also say, you know, and that's bothering me because I would love to have a deep relationship with you. I would have to have, uh, I would love to have a deep and um, meaningful, uh, sustained friendship relationship with you, right? And so I'm sad because yeah. this, this, that, and the other half. So you have to, even in the, even, and you also have to say that without attaching any expectations to how it will end, mm-hmm. right? Or to the, what will come out of it which is hard. That's like one of the hardest parts, at least for me um, when I'm trying to do this work. So uh, I do get the emotional labor piece. Thank you for expounding upon that. I hadn't thought of it in that way before. That's really helpful. And at the same time, 
um, I think it's a call for us if we find ourselves in these positions to practice um, practice that non-withholding mm-hmm. of our feelings, mm-hmm. genuinely, authentically, compassionately. Um, there's a there's a metaphor of giving and receiving here, right? The capacity to express yourself honestly mm-hmm. while you're remaining in touch with your feelings. That's the giving part. And the capacity to listen in an empathetic way to the response. That's the, re- that's the receiving part. Right. And I think that it, whether human beings or institutions, if we were equipped with these tools, then maybe, and I really believe we could, but I'll say maybe because there's no guarantees. Maybe we could get past the relational impasses that we have with each other and really, you know, cultivate that deep spirit of fellowship. Um, so I don't know if that is a satisfying answer, it, <laughs> but that is my It answer. definitely is. I think it's actually a great point to even stop there. It, sure. It's a good point. And um, uh, thanks for doing that short uh, psychological work. I feel like right, actually, <laughs> <laughs> a great one, a very needed one. Um, awesome. Thank you so much, Chloe. I really love your work. Now I have a you know, you. better understanding of theory of enchantment and the direction awesome. that you're taking. Um, do you have any material like books? Have you written any book any, where people can purchase your stuff? Um, <laughs> I, don't have a, I don't have any books out. Um, I would do that hopefully after I finish building the company, but uh, I people can go on theoryofenchantment.com we have an online course that people can take it's a full self-based course it's really cool also be on the lookout for new stuff coming out soon it's going to be also really cool and if you do enroll in the course let me know hit me up on twitter i'm at c valdery just c in my last name Mm -hmm. um and dm me if you're taking the course i'd love to hear how's it going for you and What's, in, what's deeply impacting you, what's resonating with you, what might not be resonating with you, you know. Um, this is a learning process, a growing process for me as well. So I'm, I'm, happy to, I'm happy to learn. Yeah. I love your work, Chloe, and I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. Take care. <laughs> Thank you. You too.